Out there? I'm here. Okay, good. All right. Well, I, I'm really sorry to say that no one else. I, I had a, a nibble with Patrick. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't land that fish. <laughs> he said he's a loose fish. He was a fast fish. <laughs> <laughs> he was fast, but became loose. <laughs> he was traveling, and so he said no. And Alex, Alex was not finished or didn't try. Did not even start. Yes. Okay. This <clears throat> is too bad because I don't know. This one really brings together a lot of what we looked at over the oh, it's, yeah 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 everything really is such a great book yeah and i don't even know all right so let's see you can hear me good yep yep okay and i can hear you well maybe turn it up a little bit well, then i will read the intro and uh and then we'll we'll do 42 minutes. Sounds good. See where we end up. All right. So <clears throat> Yeah, you stole my line. <laughs> <laughs> well, he stole he stole uh, Moses's line or whoever wrote Job. <laughs> they say in the book that it was Moses, the prophet Moses who wrote Job. Well, Jonah, um, I really like the Jonah chapter too. The the sermon. Yeah. Yeah. Because I I had such a such a narrow idea of what I thought the sermon was really short. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where I got that in my head. So I watched a bunch of the movies. Oh, you did! Wow, yeah. (laughs) Just because I was so curious, like. I wanted to get closer to the, like, the whaling aspect is important. It's not, it's not what he was doing, but it it was important. And so I wanted to be close, and I wanted to understand, like, the whaling. And I think they they made a movie called In the Heart of the Sea, mm-hmm. and it was not good. <laughs> i mean it was fine it was a fine movie but it wasn't like a great movie or anything but it had a lot of important actors in it um and it was about the whale ship essex Mm. you know and so you got to see some of the some of the more authentic i think you know harpooning and stuff cooking down of blubber and doing all this the stuff uh, but all the different versions, they they just I think they overplay Ahab, so he just seems crazy. They don't give him any any tenderness or. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I think Gregory Peck was probably the the best one. Yeah, you don't get a sense. Yeah, in the in that movie, yeah, you you do sort of sympathize with them as well. But but do they have that in in that movie? Does um, does that whole sequence of the mild, mild wind come up there? I don't think I've seen that sequence in any of the movies. Maybe in the... 
who was it? So now they're kind of running together in my head. But um, oh, it was the William Hurt version. Yeah, I think I think that part that you read was is it's absolutely essential to to kind of understand Ahab. It's so interesting though because it happens like the last three chapters. You know, yeah. so like yeah. it's three days. So there's it's called the symphony is that chapter, mm-hmm. and then you have each day like a well, really not a great day up with you know like Moby Dick. You know because he he stoves all the boats or like I think it was the second day that Fadala disappeared. Right. And the whole Fidala thing is is so great. I know that's another <laughs> sidetrack, but, uh, but, it, but okay. One question here though is, um, so it was Fadala afterwards that um, ended up getting lashed to the side of of Moby Dick. It wasn't Ahab, like that that Gregory Peckery yeah. <laughs> movie. It's uh, it's Ahab who's who's lashed to the side, and he's sort of he's sort of beckoning with his arm, right? And that doesn't even appear in the in the in the book. Like I, no. I, I don't. Yeah, it's so strange. So in I guess the captain, in the uh, Patrick Stewart version, they go off in this whole weird ice adventure where they're using dynamite. It was, I don't know the that one was kind of strange. Yeah, why, all, would, why would you want to add anything to this book? You know, like why would you want to add unnecessary scenes like that? You know. There's so much to this, you know. Well, because they were trying, I think they were trying to show how mad he had become. Uh, I also remember Pip having so much larger a role back when I first read it. I just, I thought, I really identified with Pip how he, like, I felt like he touched the infinite and it it screwed him up, and he was broken after that. Yeah, that's right. It says his soul went, his body, his body remained alive, but his soul went into the, the depths of the sea, like to the bottom of the sea, and was lost. You know, and then Pip himself says that all the way through. Where's Pip? He's gone. Yeah, you know, that, that coward Pip who jumped off the whaleboat. <laughs> yeah, he's. There, he, there. I mean, he's a character. He's in there, but there's. And he becomes the squire, basically, of Ahab. You know, like he's yeah. the only one who Ahab takes into confidence. Yeah, because he Ahab recognizes that he taps into the infinite. You know, that's why Ahab can't be dismissed as some like a colonialist or something. Like he's not like you, you could you could make a you could make a uh, correspondence like you say Ahab is Netanyahu and 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 uh, Moby Dick is Hamas or something, right? But um, that kind of fanatical desire to destroy something, you know. That part you could make a parallel, but Ahab is nothing like Netanyahu. Netanyahu is is is, is absolutely he's he's a non-entity uh, compared to Ahab, or compared to most people, but uh, uh, especially compared to Ahab. You know, it's like uh, Ahab um, is is not only that he can't be reduced to that, you know, um, because he's searching for something. Uh, Huge, but yeah. it's interesting because so one of the other thoughts I had was so Joyce when he's writing about in Ulysses he's writing the story of his own 
you know, young manness. Mm-hmm. But then he's also writing Leopold, who's an older man, kind of looking back a little bit. Right, and and both could be aspects of Joyce. Yes, but so Melville does something similar too, where um, you have. Ishmael, who is a young man, I think, Mm -hmm. I don't know for sure, but I think he's probably in his 20s, would you guess? Yeah, I think so, because if you you, um, map it onto um, Melville's own timeline, right? Like, like Melville worked for the Merchant Marines for a while, came back, was a school teacher for a bit, realized that he couldn't make any money, then then he became a whaler. And so... Like he wrote this whole book, like you were saying, um, it came out when he was early thirties, right? So, so if it's if Ishmael maps onto Melville, then uh, yeah, he would be in his twenties. So yeah, and so Starbucks like in his thirties, 30. yeah. But then uh, Ahab is he's fifty eight. Fifty eight, right? yeah. yeah. And right, I mean, I forty, forty, forty. I said forty a lot. Um, yeah, so he's eighteen at that time when he when he first joined the whaling right. industry, and then and then yeah, forty years later. But it and is, he's, and he's described as this old man at fifty eight. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's interesting because it is these two aspects, and that that there is more of an embodied sensual aspect to Ishmael in the first half of the book, and then it does get more he's consumed by so that's the that's the fascinating thing to me where a lot of different left lefter like progressive type liberal art folks latch on to this as kind of a a book that you can live your life by uh-huh. and so like and it comes from places where ishmael says things like um uh, the felicity of the home and the hearth and the marriage bed. I wonder if I could find that quote um, so I could read that to you. Um, uh, felicity. Well, have you got a, uh, have you got the text? Uh, yeah, there's one on Guten. Yeah. No. Yeah, there it is. So, and it's it's amazing that it's in chapter ninety four, mm-hmm. a squeeze of the hand. Oh, that's such a weird chapter too. <laughs> Squeezing the sperm. <laughs> Squeezing the sperm. <laughs> would I could? Or would that I could keep squeezing that sperm forever? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then they squeeze the sperm of all the other hands as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have perceived that in all cases, man must eventually lower. Or at, or at least shift his conceit of attainable felicity, not placing it anywhere in the intellect or the fancy, but in the wife, the heart, the bed, the table, the saddle, the fireside, the country. Right. Yeah. And and so he's he's trying to say, like that's like, if if you're trying to blast your way out of 
of uh, the fallen world, you know, like if you're trying to contend with with um, you know a, a gnostic reality or the black iron prison, the crystal palace, um, you, you, you know, Ishmael's on the other hand saying, you know, you can you can find meaning. And this is this is where it's at. It's not, you know, it's it's attainable, and it's it's uh, it's the little things. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, is a really interesting part. Like I was saying before, like this whole like uh, kind of like battle of ideas that's going on here. But it's it's a battle of really kind of obscure ideas like well on the, on the one hand you have starbuck who who represents a kind of like true or orthodox christian even though he's a quaker right but uh but he he's he sort of has that orthodox christianity to him um but then then you have ahab who's this gnostic or zoroastrian who's who's got the scar all the way down his body from this previous um ritual of lightning worship that he got into it. Um, but then uh, so so and then he has this this truly dualistic view of the world right where he's trying to break through and, and get this this inscrutable thing behind the mask of, of the world and then you have Ishmael who's this um, people describe him as a as a kind of neoplatonist right like a but he but he does have sort of that that idea that the the transcendent or the sublime is in is in the everyday you know mm-hmm. so he's not trying to um he he's not a neoplatonist in the sense that he's he's thinking that there's a transcendent beyond this world but this world contains it right if yes. only if only you right. could see it right or yeah participate in it with the squeezing of the sperm and that's the form that he's pouring that meaning into kind of but then on the other hand he's not a pantheist either because he he uh he warns against pantheism too like he warns against um like there's this that whole chapter where he's up um in the in the what like the on lookout or whatever in the in the crow's nest or whatever and then it's just a completely calm sea and uh oh that's that's a great i'll i'll read that part because that's such a, a great passage this is on page in, in my edition it's 132 which is uh chapter 35 um oh he says uh try to get it um so perhaps they were perhaps there might have been shoals of them in the far horizon, but lulled into such an opium-like listlessness, listlessness of vacant, unconscious reverie is this absent-minded youth by the blending cadence of waves with thoughts that at last he loses his identity, takes the mystic ocean at his feet for the visible image of that deep blue bottomless soul pervading mankind and nature, and every strange half-seen gliding beautiful thing that eludes him Every dimly discovered uprising fin of some in undiscernible form seems to him the embodiment of those elusive thoughts that only people the soul by continually flitting through it. In this enchanted mood, the spirit ebbs away to whence it came, 
becomes diffused through time and space like Kramer's, a crane, Cranmer's, I don't know who that is, sprinkled pantheistic ashes, forming at last a part of every shore the round globe over. There is no life in thee now except that rocking life imparted by a gentle rolling ship, by her borrowed from the sea, by the sea, from the inscrutable tides of God. But while this, while this sleep, this dream is on ye, move your foot or hand, an inch, slip your hold at all, and your identity comes back in horror over Descartian vortices. There's the other vortex, or vortex. You hover, and perhaps at midday, in the fairest weather, with one half-throttled shriek, you drop through that transparent air into the summer sea, no more to rise forever. Heed it well, ye pantheists. <laughs> so, so that's very close to his... Um, uh, Sorry. That's very close to to Ishmael's own view of things, but but he's not some uh, he's not a pantheist, right? Like he sees he doesn't totally identify God with the world in a one to one ratio, like saying the the world is God or nature is God. Mm. Um, he's saying that there's there is God beyond the nature beyond nature as well like it's this whole sort of aristotelian split between the uh, the actual and the potential right like the so so god is not only the actual he's the actual plus the potential which is the potential of everything and i think i think that's Hishmael's point of view right um, well as you were saying that it was interesting cuz he does he does invoke vishnu yeah. And isn't Vishnu the dreamer asleep on the the sea? Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, one of his uh, his uh, early incarnations is the is the great fish, right? Which is the whale. Um. But he does so that's the other th- the reason why I think this book really grabbed me then was that there's so much myth in it. Yeah, like that that whole sort of microcosmic macrocosmic reflection is there all the way through it as well right like that idea like like thoughts in your mind and then waves on the sea are the same thing right that's incredible right like it's a and but he sees that with everything and so um so he's very close to pantheism but he's 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 not because he doesn't want to fall into the sea Right, and just be lost in nature without realizing that there's something beyond it. Um, but the the reading that I initially, so that's this time, I was just contending with this on my own. I did a lot of reading around in his biography, because uh-huh. he he's just such a curiosity to me, um, because he was a very successful writer up until this book. Yeah, well, like isn't, it, it, isn't the the book before that like Marty? Also, it it kind of bombed. Well, I think. Let's see. So, and he was a he wrote fast. Yeah, and no, so it, he, it's it's unbelievable. He wrote this in like a year or so, right? Like a. Yes. Maybe so two years. he 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 had written five novels. 
so type E, which <laughs> takes place after Moby Dick, basically, because he, you know, he's on the whaling ship and then it was so nasty that he deserted it. Mm-hmm. And that's when he, he uh, was, you know, at the Polynesian village. Um, but so he, they, all his early books, and I think it might have been that Taipei was his most successful, but there was Taipei, Almu, Marty, Redburn, and White Jacket, and they were all kind of came out of his years at sea, which apparently were from 1839 to 44. And then um, he wrote all five of those books in five years from, from 45 to 1850. And then he moved, uh, to the Berkshires and in the summer of 1850 and then wrote Moby Dick. And it was published basically a year later when he was 31. But the book after that was even worse. And, and I'm just so curious, Pierre or the amb- ambiguities. Mm-hmm. And the the crux of that is that it's like uh, incest or something, and I'm wondering if that's why Cormac McCarthy in his most recent book, that was, he has these star-crossed lovers that are brother and sister. Oh, wow. And it's like, maybe, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, but... It's it's a brother and sister story as well, uh, Pierre? Uh... There's, or they're cousins or something. No, I think mm. they're, there's something strange about um, the the quality of this relationship that's in Pierre. It's like forbidden love. Mm. I I probably will read it one day. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd like to read all of his stuff. Like, I, I haven't really read. I haven't either. Um, the only other... Uh, writing i've read is is bartleby by him which is a great story yeah but but it has nothing nothing to do with the sea at all it's it's, this is an office building in new york city well and Um, so yeah after let's see so i think i i forget when he moved back to new york i don't think i don't think he no he was there for a little bit um, he moved back to New York in 1863. So, um, but he had to. I think basically they were destitute, and so he from 18 uh, like 50 to 57, he he wrote a lot of different things that were just not very successful. Mm. And then after. After that, then he decided he was a poet. But he took like a a um, Jerusalem, like he visited the holy sites. He, it, and, Melville did. Yeah. Oh, wow. He wrote the, the longest English language poem. is It's called Clarel, a poem of pilgrimage in the Holy Land. Wow, I need to read, I need to read that. And that came out in 1876. Yeah, he's he's fascinating, really. Um, so if you're saying he he his last year at sea was 1844. Yeah. So it's probably that's probably um, Moby Dick would happen before that then. 
Like it, it, probably in the 1840s, I'd say then. This, yeah. This set. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the Essex, that what year was that? 1820, I think, is what. 1820, yeah. So yeah, probably 1840s if he was in yeah, at sea at that point as a as a as a man in his 20s. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, I'm just looking up here now. I, I'm, I'm looking at uh, yeah. the, the wiki on Pierre, but it's it looks, <laughs> it looks amazing. It looks fascinating. <laughs> uh, it, there was a writer who came out, so there's, there's various biographies about him, about Melville, and I don't know if there's tons, and so there's, but there's always been lots of speculation that, like, Nathaniel Hawthorne was his lover or that he was in love with Nathaniel Hawthorne. I mean, so he dedicated Moby Dick to Nathaniel Hawthorne. He, he, well, according to the introduction in, in the, the book I have, um, he hadn't, uh, had much contact with Hawthorne, um, before he wrote this, like he, it was, uh, like it, um, it wasn't, I think he definitely was in awe of Hawthorne. 1850, he, I think, is when. Uh, yeah, he wrote a he wrote a review in August 1850 when he was reading um, Moby Dick of Hawthorne's work, Hawthorne and his mosses. Yeah, and and that um, that's what that's what uh, Charles Olson says. That was kind of that represented the split. Between the first Moby Dick and then the second, the the Moby Dick that we know, is is his response to Hawthorne. So that was fairly late, right? Like if, uh, if yeah. he only got to know Hawthorne at that time. Well, there was another bio that postulates that he had a secret love affair with with a woman named Sarah Morewood, mm. and she was. She was the, you know, the, 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 the obsession. So I think if I was going to like qualify my reading back then of Moby Dick, it was that Captain Ahab represented obsession. And so for me, that was this interesting little, it was a tangent um, that somehow connected Philip K. Dick at the same time. And then all of a sudden I was drawing these comparisons, you know, it's like, Oh, Melville, he was kind of an unsuccessful writer, uh, who was very popular after his death, who was born in 1819 and lived until uh, 1891. And then Philip K. Dick was 1828 and he died when he was, uh, no, it was 1928, and he he died when he was in 1982. So it's mm. like I I was like tripping out on this strange Philip K. Dick and Melville. I was trying to make some kind of connection between the two of them, but um, yeah, I was thinking also the um, connection with Joyce too. Like in his early life, um, supposed to be Melville was from a rich kind of a, a an aristocratic family. Um, Joyce wasn't from a, an aristocratic family, but his family was pretty rich at the beginning. And then his father, Joyce's father, just drank themselves into poverty, and they and they uh, they went from house to house all over Dublin. 
each each of their rented houses got <laughs> smaller and smaller and more impoverished. And it sounds that's exactly was the the childhood of Melville. Same sort of sequence where he's just going like his family's just having to go from house to house. Um, he so was that, also self-taught, so he really yeah. So that's so different that's, than Joyce, right? But uh, Joyce had a great education, but uh, yeah, Melville. And, Philip K. Dick also like dropped out of college, um, mm-hmm. but it in terms of his prose, like he is so there's something so agreeable about the prose. It's just it's amazing. I think Harold Bloom says it's a novel length poem. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just same thing. Uh, reading this book as with uh, certain passages of Blood Meridian like certain, well way more in this book actually than Blood, Blood Meridian but just just passages that are just so, the writing is just so amazing that I it, like tears come to my eyes you know, it's just like, just the words themselves are so beautiful the way he places them together you know, you, you wonder how <laughs> it's even humanly possible <laughs> to do that, you <laughs> know but you, but you could tell that like, he was on fire when he was writing this. Like he was just like he he had read so much literature at that point, and it was all just sort of congealing and crystallizing and coming and gushing out of him, like um, in Moby Dick, you know. So, a thought that I continually have when we learn about these guys, whether it's um, Burroughs or you know Melville, is that. He, they're spending the large part of their day writing mm-hmm. every day. Yep. And one of the reasons why they can do that is, generally speaking, they have money coming in. Like, they don't have to have a day job necessarily. Right. Of, of course, Melville was betting everything. So, like, they had, he went into debt. To buy this this uh, this farmhouse right. in the, I think they called it Arrowhead, yeah, mm-hmm. Arrowhead, um, and um, you know he was counting on Moby Dick to pay the bills. <laughs> Luckily, so his wife's family did have money. His, I, I'm drawing a blank on her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but her father was an important judge in Boston, and they had plenty of money, and they were able to – like, I think the marriage was kind of rocky and bad at various times, and they wanted her to leave him. Eventually, her family bought the property from him so that they would be out of debt, and then she owned it. Like, they gave it to her. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like I, I've, I went to Trieste, and uh, and I in Italy and saw places where Joyce lived, and it's just like tiny little rooms. Like the whole family, <laughs> like he was impoverished. You know, like and a lot of these guys were, you know, like just sacrifice themselves to their writing. Um, yeah. Somehow, somehow did it. You know, and it, it sounds like. Um, Melville was really worried about money 
too. He had huge money problems. Yeah. And concerns. Well, so that's one of those writers writers pilgrimages where they do go. You can go into that room and see the desk where he wrote Moby Dick. Where's that? In 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 uh, the Berkshires at Arrowhead. Oh. And yeah. So, at some at some point we have to do a uh, book club <laughs> tour of all these places. Go to Nantucket. <laughs> well, I kind of did when I was in Spain because. Um, uh, I was near the monastery where his his remains were buried. Who's Cervantes? Who oh wow! Okay, Don Quixote. Right. So I I didn't plan on that. It was just like, oh wait, where it? I you know, it's not where Don Quixote was taking place, but it was where uh, Cervantes was buried. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I was thinking of all these, all the books that we've read here, you know. Well, th- there, right. And so there's I, just I, a few of them that are, that reach the level of greatness, you know, just a few, you know. But, but um, Don Quixote is another one, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Globe Theater that I saw in England, I don't know. It was a, <laughs> a replica, yeah. It was a replica, and I don't know if it was where it was supposed to be or not if that was really it's yeah i think it's in a different location yeah but that gives you the whole sense of it i think it's pretty accurate to how it was supposed to be right Mm. but yeah yeah for sure like like well the book of job obviously is just it bursts to that level of greatness and shakespeare and I I I'd say Ulysses and and Moby Dick and and uh, Don Quixote. Like I, um, other books are very good that we've done, you know, but none really burst into that level. Well, so it's interesting because Mason and Dix- Dixon takes place in the world. Yeah, and so I'm curious. I would I would love to go and see some of those places because. Right. Yeah, you could walk the line a little bit. You can walk the line. You like yeah. you s- start where their church in Newcastle that kind of is the apex of the the arc mm-hmm. that they're. But you could do the same. Uh, so there's like Melville, the person writing the book, where he's at. But then there's all these whaling museums and stuff. Like it would be interesting to see some of that stuff too, the history in Nantucket. Yeah, it'd be great to go to Nantucket. And I don't know if I, if I love, like I, I was seeing an article about, so there was that film Master and Commander, and I, I watched most of it when we were reading Mason and Dixon, because there's also a nautical feel to the beginning of that book too. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's that what it is about the sea that draws me, or if it's just it's like an archetype type. Well, he says right at the beginning why, why we are drawn to the sea. Um, that's on page five. Um, here I can find that. That's uh, yeah, right at the beginning. Um, uh, where is it? It's hard to find everything. 
Oh, yes. Why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him at some time or other crazy to go to sea? Why upon your first voyage as a passenger did you find yourself, uh, did you yourself feel such a mystical vibration when told that you and your ship were now out of sight of land? Why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity and own brother of Job? of Jove. Surely all this is not without meaning. And still deeper, the meaning of that story of Narcissus is a great part, who because he could not grasp the tormenting mild image he saw in the fountain, plunged, plunged into it and was drowned. But that same image we ourselves see in all rivers and oceans. It is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life. And this is the key to it all. That, uh, yeah, in a way, that it is the key to it all, the, the whole book, right? We're trying to find in in the sea, in the water. Like, me too. I, every every place I go to, every place I, I've lived, I want to be close to the sea or, or a river or some some lake or something. I always walk towards a body of water and... Uh, for for some reason, and I I think that explains it as well as anything. You know, it's like a, you're looking you're looking in the water for an image of your own soul or something, right? Well, and so that's why one of my departures from this book was into like Jungian depth psychology. Yeah, and so that I the the person that I was reading at that time was making a lot of, you know, and, and, uh, Joseph Campbell, I think said similar things too, but like Jungian things, the, you know, it is this unconscious, this kind of, uh, unfathomable thing that we're trying to come to terms with. Yeah, and and like if you, if if you call that the sea, right? Like uh, so oh, the one 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 part in the uh, one part in the uh, the book, he explains Ishmael explains that in the sea the flood never ended, so we we think of ourselves as being post diluvian, right? But the sea is anti diluvian. It's like uh it's still the primitive world, right? Like it's still the, uh, the, the flood never ended there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is a, which it's an awesome thought, you know? And, and, and that's what it is in, in Jungian terms. That's this oceanic consciousness or, or unconscious, right? Um, is the sea. Um, this, 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 I, I don't know. It's this primal longing that draws us towards water, you know, and eventually down to the sea, you know. It all all water runs to the sea. So, yeah, it's it. I live on the Pacific, right? Like I can see the I can see the ocean from my house, um, and I go there. I go there all the time. I go to the beach. I don't go in. I, I go swimming, but I don't go 
to the point where I don't see land, right? But uh, but I get that feeling going down there, you know. Sea level, you know, sea level is the lowest you can get and still breathe air. <laughs> so yeah, when it was, I wonder how many years ago, maybe 2018, went to Belize. Oh yeah, I I, uh, I lived there for a while. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. it's lovely there. Yeah. Um, but we went out beyond the reef into the deep ocean to try and see uh, nurse sharks. Mm. No, whale sharks. That's what they're called. Whale. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're, they're feeding, and so they they come up, and you have just a second to jump off the boat and to see them. but it it was just amazing to me from like a tightly wound american you need insurance for everything to here's like 10 people 10 white people on a boat (laughs) um and you have some locals who are familiar but there's these giant swells and there's no land anywhere and we're just way out in the deep blue sea and you're like, people are jumping off the boat, and then we're swimming to try and find whale sharks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. When it, when, you could when, get a sense of what Pip tasted, but like this is there's the boat is always there. You sometimes can't see it when the wave it goes behind the wave. Yeah, we yeah. when I was. Um, when I was younger, uh, uh, I, when I was hitchhiking across the states, and uh, I went to this kind of you, you know what a rainbow gathering is? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like not rainbow as people think of it now, but uh, yeah, just post Woodstock hippie gathering in the in the wilderness. And this was in the desert in Arizona. And so when I was there, me and a friend, we met up with all these other people who were camping out in the desert. And then a bunch of us decided together that we were going to make our way down to Baja, California on the on the uh, West Coast to the spawning grounds of the whales that come up there, <laughs> you know, and we were going to we we didn't know what we do. Like we just swim out to them or something like we had this crazy idea. So we ended up like a, to fund this whole adventure. We were painting curbs like this guy we met in the desert he had this whole sort of business plan he could do at you would just go into towns and and offer to paint curbs and inevitably you'd get some people who would want the their number their address number painted on a curb in reflective paint and so we'd get money from that and that sort of funded our trip and so we hitchhiked down we had this crazy hitchhike went into mexico hopped on a freight train Went down the coast, got over to Baja, and finally got to the whales. And we were trying to <laughs> swim out to the whales. Like, no <laughs> idea what we're trying to do. You know, which is insane. Like, now reading this book again, it was like, that's fucking like we imagine that they're gonna welcome us or something. You know, like <laughs> uh, they're not wild animals. But we didn't get out. We didn't get out to them. Like, it's probably great that we didn't get that far out. But we're swimming, uh, swimming the ocean, trying to get to the to whales. It's just, but uh. So I don't know. It's just in in my mind that was such a uh, such a like like formative weird thing 
quest that happened to me in my in my life that oh. <laughs> anyways that didn't, yeah it involved whales <laughs> well so uh, we went to seattle for fourth of july this past year and um we did one of those whale watching tours oh yeah and i don't know environmentally if they're if they're good or bad I mean, you kind of feel like maybe they're not great, but it's it's similar to where you're you're using all the different technologies you have at your disposable disposal, whether it's you know other boats or you know whatever sensors they have to try and figure out if where they can show us some whales, and you and then you like have to kind of cut the engine. But we ended up seeing like three different kinds of whales that day. Um, And they're pretty close, but I bet, yeah. So it just, it, it makes you, it's amazing to me all the different times when they're saying spring now, spring now, Quahog, spring, because they have to row these. (laughs) Put your backs into it. Yeah. Because they have to row those boats, like they they drop them off off the ship, and then they have to row out to the whales. The other thing I kept thinking about is how, like, we think of these ships as like these antiques, mm. but they were like cutting edge technology, you know? Like oh yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah. Like it's not some guy in his backyard that can make one of these things. It's you know, like you have to have money, and and uh, what? Yeah, like what you said before. It's it, this was the major industry of the world at that time. You know, and and like sperm oil was burned everywhere. That was that was. It's the same as oil. Is the same as petroleum became, and it's it's amazing. Like it's like this this the whole idea of burning oil. Um, continues on with sperm oil and so petroleum is a replacement for that like it it determined the whole course of where technology would go to the fact that they're burning sperm oil at one point and then they they found petroleum and found out it's a better alternative right um, and didn't the they mention of, that in blood meridian about uh Maybe they did because I remember they were talking about oil, right? Like uh, at the end, right at the very end, about uh, about oil, right? Like that—that that was what closed the West, basically, right? Is that? Yeah, something. Um. So so uh. Yeah, it's amazing, but the but then the idea of of whales, right? Like um, so that there are other whales that get hunted at that time like the right whales right but but then the sperm whale is sort of the king of the whales right like the the ultimate of of the whales and then moby dick being the ultimate of uh of of the sperm whales like like leviathan himself you know um but then the the crazy biology of sperm whales is just something incredible too you know like the 
the fact that they're even called sperm whales, you know, like because they thought at some point that the deposits in the whale's heads, which they use as spermaceti, spermaceti just means sperm of a whale. They thought that was actually sperm and that the whales deposited the sperm in their heads, which, which seems like such an absurd concept, except if you look into, uh, you look into medicine from ancient times, like, like Galen, for example, um, even, even, even on up like ancient times in the medieval period to even to the Renaissance, there was this idea that there was a, there was a, uh, a direct connection between, um, a male's genitals, his balls and the brain, right? And there's a, there's a channel going through the backbone, through the marrow of the backbone up into the skull, which even in Moby Dick, it, it describes the skull as being like a, like a, basically a big vertebrae. Like it's a, it's a giant expanded vertebrae and it was filled with this hollow and this hollow was filled with sperm, um, and you can see, you can see sketches by Leonardo da Vinci when he's when he's sketching out anatomy, and he he sketches in this this channel that goes from the balls up to the brain, right? Um, and so that itself is kind of this this kind of mystic physiology, because that's the basis of uh, Eastern yoga as well, like this the idea that you can raise your kundalini. The sort of subtle serpentine like power up through your backbone to your brain and and focus it out through your uh, third eye chakra your crown chakra like the 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 physiology we we have this idea that that the west has always been sort of this mechanistic or materialistic culture but it wasn't it had if you read plato even you can find those ideas there that are very similar to um Eastern thinking about Kundalini and, and the, the chakras, all of that, like this connection, this subtle connection between genitalia and, and the mind and, and the connection between procreation and creation, imaginative creation in your, in your mind. So I don't know. So there's, I, I think there's a whole mystical side behind, behind the concentration on the sperm whale, right? Even though at that time when they re- when when Melville's writing this book, they people realized that spermaceti and, and actual sperm, two different things. But they have they had no idea what spermaceti was actually being used for, and they and they still don't. I checked into that. Um, they have scientists have certain ideas what spermaceti is for, like that it's used for um, deep dives. That as it as as the whale dives deeper, it sort of crystallizes and becomes heavier, and sort of and then and as they as they start to rise, it becomes liquefied and allows more buoyancy. But they don't they they there's no conclusions on that. They don't have a a definitive answer of what it what it actually is or what it's used for. Hmm. And then and then in the book, how it's described. Well, that scene that you that you read squeezing the sperm and how 
it produced, it's almost like this euphoric drug, you know, like the, the smell of it is it's supposed to be so <laughs> beautiful, you know, like a, <laughs> oh.